Postcards from a Dying World, the podcast. For more than a decade, I've reviewed over 1,000 books that are mostly science fiction, horror, and bizarro. This feed will feature bonus audio I have produced over the years, as well as a monthly digest of reviews based on what I've read each month, plus the occasional bonus material about my own fiction. Thanks for listening. Hello and welcome to Postcards from a Dying World. I have a special guest today and a guest uh, interviewer with me who, returning to the podcast, Judge Mark Rothenberg from Indianapolis, one of my oldest horror nerd friends. And uh, he's going to help me interview uh, Bev Vincent, who's a writer, award-nominated writer, and he is an author of both fiction and nonfiction. And he's mostly known, I think, to most people as one of the biggest Stephen King experts on the planet, which is saying something, because there's a lot of people that kind of fancy themselves that. But Bev has literally written the book three times over on Stephen King and has a new one coming out. We're going to talk about that. But uh, Bev, welcome to Postcards from a Dying World. It's great to have you here. Very pleased to be here. Thanks for having me on. Well, you know, I always got to start at the beginning. And how did you discover horror fiction? Um, probably my earliest experience with it was when I was maybe 10. And we were on a family vacation somewhere probably down in Maine, not appropriately enough. And there was a discount paperback book stall where I just sort of grabbed a couple of things that looked interesting. Uh, one of them was Edgar Allan Poe's Tales of Mystery and Imagination. The other one was the Jungle Book, so you know, it's sort of crossing genres there. But that I read that uh, collection of short stories. I think I have it somewhere on my shelf still. Read it to pieces till you know the binding broke and the stories all came out. And those stories came to live in my mind to the extent that whenever I go back and reread them, I'm always astonished by how short they are. Uh, things like Tell Tell Heart and Cask of Amontillado are only like three or four pages, but they seem to just fill. Uh, my mind with uh, the story that uh, you know, I read uh, what 50 years ago, probably for the first time. Well, and so you're you're Canadian, right? And so so you took vacations in Maine country. Um, I, I bet that had an influence on 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 how you uh, kind of discovered Stephen King and actually had a feeling for it, since Maine was a place you were familiar with, right? Well, I, and I grew up in New Brunswick, which is shares a long border with Maine. So the, the two places have a lot of similarities and there's definitely a lot of cross border uh, transfer of mythology and people. And yeah, so, yeah, we, we went camping in, in Maine all the time. Uh, it was one of our favorite places to go. So, yeah, I'm very, very familiar with Bangor. Um, and so certainly, you know, when we got into the dairy stories, I was able to imagine uh, that city because I visited it so frequently over the years. Now, um, how old were you when you discovered, I mean, were, you were an adult when you started reading King, right? Uh, am yeah, I correct? Yeah, I was 18, I would say. It was my first year at university. Okay, but before um, we get to that, who, okay. when you were a kid, who were the authors that you said, Edgar Allan Poe, were you a Matheson fan? Like, who were you reading, like, during that era? So my evolution probably is the Hardy Boys. Um, I had to read everything by them. I was always looking for the one or two books that I had missed, or maybe there was a new one coming out. From there, I progressed into Agatha Christie and the, the other sort of cozy uh, crime writers of that era, uh, Jonathan Dixon Carr, 
Um, and then I morphed into some of the grittier side of things like Mickey Spillane, uh, Ed McBain, uh, Robert Parker. Um, although, you know, I'm, I'm known for my work on King, really the core of influences in my life have been the crime writers and continue to this day. I, I'm, I'm a big fan of contemporary crime. And now that we have all of these streaming services with uh, some really great crime series, I'm just in my glory. <laughs> yeah, I bet. Did you start writing um, fiction when you were young or was that something you did in adulthood? I wrote, uh, I remember sitting down and beginning something that was an influence of a cross between Mickey Spillane and Charlie's Angels. <laughs> and I, of course, it was a typewriter in those days. Uh, my father worked in a paper mill and he used to bring home some of the, the leftover stock pages. Um, so it was like really coarse, uh, eight and a half by 11 paper that had been run through the paper mill. Uh, and I don't know if I got like 30 or 40 pages into this thing. It doesn't exist to, to this day. Uh, it's probably very dreadful, but I didn't really start writing seriously. Well, I guess, let me take that back. When I was in grade eight, um, we had an assignment um, where we could write a short story instead of doing an exam. And so I wrote a very Agatha Christie influenced murder on a train stuck in a snowstorm kind of story, which my English teacher, bless his soul, told me it was good enough to be published. Um, I do still have a copy of that one. Um, he was uh, really uh, pumping up the praise of that one because I don't consider it to be anywhere near enough to be published. Well, let me ask you this, Bev, then what you know, starting at that point in time, would you say that those crime authors are the ones that influenced you more so than, you know, later on, you, you know, obviously Stephen King, you've worked with Brian Keene. Uh, and, and it's still, you know, as you said, your, your genre preference of today, what, what crime authors besides Agatha Christie's that would, would you say were your main influences? Um, I, I, I read so widely. Um, but I would say the, 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 the sort of the procedural authors were the ones I think that had the, the biggest influence on me. And then of course the, the private detective uh, who, who has the code of ethics, you know, Robert B. Parker, um, of course, uh, some of the older ones, um, you know, names are eluding me right now, but really my writing took off when I discovered King. And I would say the biggest influence on my early writing was Night Shift. Mm. Um, I, in, in college, I started writing short stories after short stories after short stories. And I never did anything with them except I read them to the other people in my dormitory. And I've, I have all of those stories. Some of them I've revamped and have published many, many years later. But that was really the, the grounds of saying, you know, I want to write stories like this. I want to write scary stories. So was Night Shift the first one that you you found on that paperback rack at eighteen, or was it was it something else? The first, the first one I got was um, uh, Salem's Lot. That's one that really hooked me, and and I didn't go into it looking for a horror novel. At that time, I was reading a lot of uh, science fiction, fantasy, uh, Asimov, um, and Asimov has a, has a few good crime novels which are have a scientific basis to them, which I, I really liked because I'm a scientist in my day job. Um, but other people like Robert Heinlein, uh, Piers Anthony at the time. Um, but then I just saw this book at the end of the, the rack in the paperback bookstore. And I, I, it sounded vaguely familiar to me. Somebody must have mentioned it and recommended it. So I said, oh, I'll pick this up. And I just added it to the stack. 
And as soon as I started reading it and got into it, I thought, wow, this guy's really good. And my reading personality is such that whenever I discover somebody I like, I've got to read everything that they've ever written. But in 1979, that wasn't very much. Uh, you know, he only had a handful of books out. So I, I remember going back home that summer after semester and going to the library in town and getting all of the, uh, the, the Doubleday books and just sort of tearing through them, probably not in uh, publication order, but in some random order. Just from that point on, I was just hooked. Now, since you started reading King when he was, you know, just starting out, do you think that gives you an advantage to some of the other um, uh, so-called King experts that, you know, grew up with him or started reading him when he was already uh, established? Because I feel like your ability to kind of see his career grow kind of gives you an advantage. I mean, I'm saying this as somebody who's a Philip K. Dick expert who was in second grade when he died. So, (laughs) you know, right. That's an interesting point. I've never thought about it that way. Um, But I've definitely, you know, I was on board from 1979 onward. And, you know, in the early days, I was still an undergrad. So whenever the new books came out, it was this, oh, my God, there's a new book out that's hardcover. And I, you know, undergrad without much money. So I have to wait for the paperback. But I did get to the point before very long when I just couldn't even do that anymore. And the first probably the first proper hardback book I ever bought was Different Seasons, if not Cujo. I can't remember exactly. But from that point on, I was like, and as soon as the hardcovers come out, I'm, you know, I'll, I'll put away my drinking budget for the week and I'll buy a hardcover book. <laughs> at, at, at what point? At what point did you decide, hey, you know what? I'd like to make him the subject of of what I'm going to write about. Well, you know, I, I started um, writing a column for Cemetery Dance Magazine in about 2001. Uh, Rich Chismar, the the magazine had been on hiatus for a while, and when he brought it back, he he, he had this column. That there was always a column with Stephen King news in the in the magazine, and he decided he wanted to go in a different direction with it, and so he got in touch with me, because I, I'd sort of made a, a name for myself as a know-it-all smartass on on the internet back in the 90s, just because of the kind of person I am, you know, if people ask a question, you know, who was that character in that book, uh, if I didn't know the answer, I'd go look it up, and I'd always answer it, and, you know, that, that sort of catapulted, and so I started writing column in 2001. And every issue of the magazine since then, I've had one of these uh, news and reviews and commentary things in it. And, and and I will say, as somebody who's read quite a few issues of Cemetery Dance, I a lot of times would flip straight to to the Dead Zone section, the letters from the Dead Zone, because I wanted at, at, at a certain point that was like how you found out what was coming down the pike, you know, yeah. what was going on, special editions, those kinds of things. So you know. Um, you know, I consider your column to be like a part of the cemetery dance experience, really. Oh, thanks. Yeah, and the early columns, yeah, there was there was no rain on me, so I, I think my first column was like seventy five hundred words, and it must have taken up a third of the magazine. Now, after a while, what, the magazine sort of slowed down in its publication schedule, so you know, I'd write a column today, and it wouldn't come out for nine or 12 months. And so the, the immediacy of the news wasn't there anymore. So we sort of gravitated more towards the, the criticism, commentary, review type of, of a column. And then we have the online version of it at newsfromthedeadzone.com. But after a while, people kept asking me, you know, when are you going to write a book about Stephen King? 
And I thought, you know, I don't really want to write a book about King. And to write about his work, which is really where my interest lies, it, to me, it seemed like a life's work. You know, you'd have to, it's bigger than a PhD study. It's, it's just massive. There's so many books. You know, right. Bill Sheehan did a book on Peter Straub called At the Foot of the Story Tree, which I consider to be like a really excellent book. But at the time he wrote it, Straub only had about seven or eight novels. And so you could really dive deep into everything. And, but at some point, I guess when I found out that King had finished the first drafts of the Dark Tower books, I thought, here is something that I can tackle that's manageable. It's just seven books, but it spans his whole literary career. I mean, he started writing it when he was about 21 and, you know, he finished writing it in the 2000s. So, and then a lot of the stuff that he'd written along the way had connections to it. Which so most thought, people write. didn't realize. Yeah. You know, yeah, a lot of readers didn't, not even constant readers realized that, you know, there were connections to Salem's Lot, to Insomnia, to whatever, you know. Yeah, and a lot of those connections came up sort of retroactively as he tied things together later on. But I thought, okay, I, I can write about the Dark Tower series and say maybe something meaningful about the, the bigger world. And so that was really my entry into writing at great length about King. Mm. Yeah, and... The Dark Tower, uh, was, was the Dark Tower, were you a particular fan of the Dark Tower over other works or? I had or... gotten one of the Grant editions of The Gunslinger in 84 when we found out about it through Pet Cemetery, And of course that was the only Dark Tower book we had for quite a number of years. And there was something about that book that really struck me. And I often have said that it's a, it's a mood book now, there's, there's different things that you say, well, this book is a character book or this is a plot book. And to me, The Dark Tower, The Gunslinger was always a mood book. And it was so different from the rest of King's stuff. But I, I must have read it half a dozen times because there was nothing else. You know, there were so few books. Um, and so I've been on board with The Dark Tower since 84, waiting patiently for each new one to come out, you know, uh, you know, reading the rumors and the speculation about when the next book was going to come. And so, yeah, I would say that it's it's been, you know, part of my life for, how are we going to say, almost 40 years. Now, you say that it seemed more manageable, but um, the Dark Tower series, there's a <laughs> lot of words in the Dark Tower series. So how do you go about tackling that as a book project? Did you you know, how did you start that project? Because I'm very fascinated by, you know, as somebody who's, you know, working on a similar nonfiction book about an, an author, that's one of the reasons why I was really curious to talk to you. Because I am curious, like, you know, where do you start on a Dark Tower book? Well, the first thing I did, which was a little bit audacious, was I, probably by fax in those days, I sent a fax to King's office and I said, this is my idea. I would like to write about the Dark Tower series. Um, if you hate the idea, just say so, and I'll move on and peddle my paper somewhere else. However, if you don't mind me working on this, it would be really helpful if I could read the last three books in manuscript so I could have my book ready to be published very shortly after the seventh book is published. And, you know, it was one the of these first time he ever reached out to his people or not really. I, we'd had sort of a sporadic uh, relationship back and forth. They, they'd sometimes because of the dead zone. Them. 
Column. Yeah, I always ask them, you know, what's what news is coming out uh, towards deadline. But this was a real Hail Mary ask. Yeah. And uh, yeah, that's but, it's you know, pretty much like saying, hey, George Lucas, let me see Return of the Jedi before, you know, Return yeah. of the Jedi. Two years before the books were <laughs> exactly. And yeah. so um, I got the response back the next day. Steve says, fine. Manuscripts are on the way. But don't forget, you know, he knows where you live. So that, that was the only that there was no like non-disclosure agreement or you know not, no legalese or anything like that just 2500 pages of manuscript showed up on my front doorstep the next day with the last three books and so well my, my i would process, figure i would figure he would understand that you're a writer and you you would understand that you wouldn't want to spoil anything yeah. or oh, yeah. give anything away yeah now his publisher was a little bit less uh, calm about it. I had to talk her down off the ledge when I remember having to call her up and say, you know, I'm not going to tell anybody anything. I, I, I made a very sort of public statement that I'll not answer any questions about the series at all, except I'll tell you how many pages are in the books. <laughs> right. That was my one concession. I'll tell you that, you know, book five is this many pages, book six shorter, book seven's longer. So, Bev, let me let me ask you this: You get the manuscripts in your hands, and you start reading yep. them. Yep. Uh, at some point during those books, are you pulling a misery and going, "I can't believe he did this," or or are you surprised by what you see? Are you excited? I, really, what I'm getting is, when you get a new Stephen King book in your hand, are you looking at it as a fan first, or as a literary yep. critic first? Are you looking at it with a a critical eye as to how it's written? How, how do you go about that when a new book comes out? Especially, and I guess it works really well with this moment when you get this fan, fan first definitely fan first um i remember when i was getting towards the end i had about 200 pages left of the, the final book and you know i have a day job and so i'm sitting on the couch with this stack of pages going you know read one put it on the stack and i just got to a point where i just i had to read the rest of it even though it made me late for work that day i just you know, the, the fan in me just said I've, i can't stop here you, you know what, Bev? I have notes. goosebumps for you. Like, yeah, that's... like hearing the story retroactively. And, and yeah, I'm a Dark Tower fan as well, so. Yeah, I wasn't taking notes or anything at that point. I was just reading it to, you know, to experience the story for the first time. And, right. and I got to re-experience it a few times because this was first draft. So, of course, there were the edits and revisions and, you know, the, 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 the subsequent versions of those books. But then um, I just went through and I, I got myself four or five different colored highlighters and I started going through the books and I highlighted in different colors for different things. Um, I wanted to map out the timeline of the series. How many days actually transpire over the whole thing. And so that was one color. Um, character bits, um, vocabulary things that, you know, his special languages that I, I wanted to be able to refer back to. Uh, so there were sticky notes all over the place and highlights and that was my first pass. Um, and, and But by that point, I had already written a very detailed outline of what I wanted the book to be. And that's how I sold the project, was based on a sample chapter, which was the opening chapter, which is the, the chronology of the publication of the series. And then uh, just sort of paragraph descriptions of what would come after that. Yeah. So that's one of the things people don't realize about nonfiction is with fiction, you always have to be finished and then you sell the book. With nonfiction, you almost never, you, you sell the book and then you have to write it. Yeah, yeah. Well, and you know, it's 
funny because you you were in this you know weird bubble where you were one of the few people that that knew what was going on and i think we can spoil the end of the dark tower because most people who are listening to this are serious king nerds but if you want to bounce ahead a little bit <laughs> um so the big reveal at the end of the dark tower you got that two years before publication yep and um you know what was what was your thought when when you read that um as a fan and as the person writing the book about this because i'm wondering just your experience reading it and then you had to write about that that decision i uh, thought that it couldn't have ended any other way when i got to that point and i read those those final lines i thought that it just makes perfect sense it's got the full symmetry of you know, this is how it begins and this is how it ends. And I thought that was perfect. I, I, I do, I didn't really correspond with King very much when I was working on this book. I did fire a few questions off to him. And there's a point in the final book where he warns readers, says, you know, you could stop here. Um, you know, what happens next, you know, it's on your own conscience if you decide to carry on and read these final pages because you might not like what you find. And so I, I did ask him, I said, you know, did you ever really consider stopping at that point? And he said, no, no so that was, it was always going to be, at least in, in later years, it was always going to be the way that things ended up. And, and him writing himself in as, as, as a character um, and, and being, you know, I mean, that, I mean, beyond it, like kind of resetting and, and the, the will of Khan and all that going on, I mean, him writing himself in as a character, that was a huge reveal for you to, to kind of sit on. Um, did you have a lot of fun when, when, when the book came out and the readers were all discovering this? Well, I, I actually got a sneak peek of that one earlier. Um, I had gone to New York for a fundraiser that he had done with uh, John Grisham and uh, Peter Straub and Pat Conroy for... Um, there was a, a guy named Frank Muller who was the audiobook narrator for a bunch of his books, especially the Dark Tar books, who had been severely injured in a motorcycle accident. And as a independent contractor, writer, you know, actor thing, he didn't have much insurance, so they did this benefit. And I came up with an idea of how to raise some cash for that thing. And when it turned out to be pretty successful, King sent me this uh, thing. I mean, this little. Uh, FedEx envelope showed up in my door one day. He had on his way to California to visit Muller, who was really badly in really bad shape because of the accident. He wrote that section of uh, the Dark Tower where he appears, where where uh, Eddie and uh, Roland meet him. And it's on a little yellow tablet in King's very distinctive penmanship. And he sent me those pages. Uh, oh, of that chapter but, so i have the handwritten first manuscript of, of that chapter and what was really funny was on the on the have, front have of you it framed them have you uh, well no it's still in the tablet in that fedex envelope puts up safety away but on the front page was his sort of to-do list for the trip and it was you know take this take that and i think there was one comment like take a nightmare medication or something like that or i mean there's a few, <laughs> little, few little funny bits on the front of it but yeah that that's probably of all the things i've got that's my pride and joy of my king collection yeah a listener to our podcast sent me this uh letter from uh philip k dick that he wrote to a woman he was crushing on and uh <laughs> this this signature is the only thing i've got of his actual handwriting I've got pictures other than that, but 
So yeah, those pages, that's crazy. So you yeah. got to read those pages before you actually finished the rest but of the before book? I, before I even got to read any of the other, of the final three books. So I just saw them in abstraction from the rest of the story. And I was just tickled. I thought this is, this is the coolest thing ever. Oh, wow. Yeah. And, and so that shows that he had a lot of respect for what you were doing for, for writing this Dark Tower book, right? You know, that, that's, that's, that's unbelievably cool. And we've, uh, become friend, we've, we've become really friendly over the years since then. Yeah. Um, we worked together on the Flight or Fright anthology, which was really fun. We'll, we'll, we'll get to that. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get to that. But uh, well, we're still on the Dark Tower book. Um, did you... I, I know you've answered this question a hundred times before, but for our listeners, um, the, uh, you know, did you ever get feedback from King, like on, on having written this book or did he want to kind of stay away from the criticism of it? The, um, when my publishers were getting ready to put the book together, they, they wanted to put authorized by Stephen King on the front of front cover. And so at that point, uh, Steve and I were emailing with each other and I, wrote to him and I said this is what they want to do you know what do you think and he said you know if that's what they want to do I'm okay with it but that's going to imply that maybe I being king had a greater hand in this book and that you wrote things to appeal to me uh, when that wasn't the case I mean you wrote the book I, I didn't have anything to do with it and so that was it was really good advice and I said okay, do you have anything else that we could put there in place of that? At which point he sent me this very nice blurb about how the book uh, opened doors to Roland's world that not even he knew existed. And that's what ends up on the, the front cover of the, the Road to the Dark Tower. That's incredibly, that's almost as cool as him sending you those pages, right? He, he is, over the years, the one thing I've really discovered about him is that he is generous beyond anybody's comprehension. I mean, he uses his celebrity and his, you know, people that have access to him to raise up all sorts of authors, um, I mean, even streaming shows, you know, his, his words about a, a TV show or a book are like gold in the bank for a lot of people. And yeah, he, he ask very, severance, very the people who made severance. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And the, there was, there was a, uh, a couple of European shows, uh, one called the money heist, a Spanish uh, show. And he started talking about to the extent where they invited him to do a, a voice cameo for one of the, the dubbed versions, the English dubbed version of that Spanish series. So he's got this little, you know, voice cameo in one of the episodes. Well, his, I mean, it, it carries a lot of weight. He's, he is one of the reasons I picked up the Damnation game, right? It, mm -hmm. it he's, yeah, I've seen the future of war, you know, that, I mean, yeah, that was absolutely. enough for me and boom, I'm off to the races with Clyde Barker. Mm -hmm. mm, all right. So, um, before we get into, um, I, I guess I, I didn't really ask this earlier and I should have, but, um, you know, cause here's the funny thing is, is I almost prefer, I'm almost more into Stephen King as the person that he is and what he's done for the community than I am as an actual writer. Like he's, I know that sounds really silly to say, like there's some of his novels that I consider absolute masterpieces, like the dead zone and stuff. But, um, and I loved later of the most recent stuff, but you know, he's not exactly my favorite author as far as output, but I so appreciate everything that he's done and the generous spirit that he has had that um, 
I you know I, I almost more respect what he's done as a person than he has as a writer. Does that make sense? Like, it does. It does. And you know, although I said back in the day I didn't really want to write about Stephen King the person, when uh, I was approached uh, by a publisher to do this, but eventually became the Stephen King Illustrated Companion, my interest in him as a person was primarily to see what was going on in his life that was reflected in what he was writing at the time. And I discovered that as a rule, there's a lot of his own personal life that gets somehow rather converted into the, the books that uh, have come out over the years. And so for that project, I looked for especially biographically influenced stories, novels to, to write about. So you can sort of say, you know, he almost died of uh, uh, pneumonia. And when he came out of the hospital, his wife had redone his uh, studio and she hadn't yet put it back together. And he said, it was like I died. And that was the crux behind Lisi's story. And when you dig into things like that and you say, you know, not all of these stories are just things that get pulled out of the air. There's a lot of who he is uh, in them. That, that, that's what I enjoyed writing about in, in the, the first version of the Stephen King companion. We have the same thing with Philip K. Dick because we have to cons consult what we call Divorcepedia, like where he is in his marriages. And like, was he happy, <laughs> Phil? Was he sad, Phil? You know, and so we had the same was he, thing. Was he high on cocaine, Steve? You know? Yeah, exactly. So so you, you definitely have that on your end, too. Um, you have an, well, you have, an, you have a window there then, Bev. Let me ask you this. Because a lot of people have a lot of different opinions about his work. What would you say is his most personal work then based on, you know, what he was going through at the time? What, what, what work that Great he put question. out was, this is a direct thing as to what happened to him in his life at that moment? Well, I, I would probably reiterate that that was Lisi's story because, you know, the, 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 the story of Lisi's story is about the, the author who died his, his wife, his wife is the character. And Steve's wife, Tabitha, has always been his, you know, number one fan, his biggest supporter, his, you know, she's been with him through the highs and lows right from the very beginning. And she's not often overlooked for that. I mean, if, if they donate a bunch of money to something, to a library or something like that, it's like Stephen King and his wife. It's, it's rarely Stephen and Tabitha King. And so I think for him to sort of take on that I mean, Lisi's story, she often talks about how there's these group photographs and sometimes she's just the elbow at the edge of the frame where she's been cut off from the picture. Um, I think that meant a lot to him to acknowledge everything that she's done for him over the years and sort of elevate the author's wife, even though she's an author in her own right, but as an equal partner in this relationship that he couldn't have done any of this without her probably. Right. So for you, and this is kind of going back a little bit, do you have, um, and, and this is kind of a corny question, but I think this is one that, you know, everyone's probably wondering is to you, what are your favorite works for Stephen King or which are, which are the ones that, that had the biggest impact on you as somebody who's written about his work all through his career? Well, obviously I'll always have a fond spot in my heart for Salem's Lot because it was the first. Right. And it had such an impact on I mean, everything that I've read thereafter. Plus, it's a damn good book. 
Um, the Shining, uh, clearly will, I think of all of his works that might be the one that has the, the, the biggest legs, the, the longest uh, lasting arc. Um, the Dead Zone is, especially in recent history, is, is a book that has sort of come back into prominence because of uh, its thematic I, I think it's his best novel, personally. Yeah. The Dead Zone. And, and there was a point in time when he used to say that about it as well. Yeah. Uh, in subsequent years, other things have supplanted it. Um, though they are somewhat overlooked, I would say that his early 90s books, which have women as the main character, so Gerald's Game, Dolores Claiborne, uh, Rose Matter, um, show an evolution in his writing. Um, and by that point, he was you know, several years clean uh, and, and dry and, and uh, Gerald's Game especially when I go back and read that one there is an awareness in that one that I, I think the first time I read it I, I just completely missed I just thought it was a good book but in subsequent years when I've gone back I said wow this guy is really tapped into the abused woman and the tra traumatized woman with a long history of abuse Right, and I think Dolores Claiborne might be his best first-person narrative. One of the best first-person narrative novels, you know. And I would argue that it's one of the best movie adaptations in one of his books, even though they sort of tear the book apart and rip pieces and put it back together in a completely different way. I look at it as a movie that really captured the essence of the novel really, really well. That's a, that's a question I have for you. What do you believe is his best adapted work? And, and secondarily, what work has not been adapted that you would like to see adapted? Is there um, something that hasn't been adapted at this point? Yeah, there, there are a few. There might be. Um, and, and there, but kidding. of course, there are always threats that they will be adapted. Um, <laughs> I would say Rose Matter is one that's got some possibility. Um, it, it's been talked about over the years. Um, for the best adapted ones, well, you, you know, with streaming lately, there's been some really, really good things done. I mean, I really enjoyed the, the Mercedes series which I thought added some interesting things to the story um, while still telling the story. Um, 11, What's that? Chapel Wait, I thought was really good. Chapel Wait was actually, I didn't have much interest in that when it was announced. I thought, you know, here they are making a big series out of a 30-page you know, short story. Right. I was really, really impressed by it. Yeah, I, me too. I, I'm, a, I'm a strong uh, champion of that series. Yeah. Um, I thought 112263 was well done. Um, the, the emotional connection between you know, the, the main character and the, the teacher that he meets, Sadie Dunhill, was particularly well done. And they solved the problem of a novel which is mostly one guy doing things by himself by bringing in a character who's just barely mentioned in the book and making him sort of like the buddy so that you can explain things to him and not have to have like voiceovers and narratives and things like that. Mm -hmm. I thought that was that was well done. Yeah, I did um, too. And I think that's one of um, it's it's funny because if you look at it on paper, it's not a novel that should appeal to me. But I think it's one of his best written twenty first century novels. Eleven twenty two sixty three. I think it, it's very very solid. Um, and Bag of Bones, I would say, in in terms of favorite books, it's one that I always go back to. Um, I think that it's also a very personal book. And I, I look at Bag of Bones and Lisey's story as the bookends. Uh, Bag of Bones is about the author whose wife dies and Lisey is about the, the wife of the author who dies. 
and together they make a very interesting pair. So let me okay, oh, go, go ahead, ahead, Dave. Sorry. sorry. Uh, okay. Let me go back to your original, you know, your original influence here, which is, you know, those crime novels, those, those, uh, those mysteries. How do you feel? Where does his the the hard case crime books that he wrote? Where do those fit in? You think in in his overall? I mean, I have, and I'll be honest, I still have not read later yet because oh, it's just not I my, loved it. I know, I and that's great. it's on my to be to to be read. Uh, shelf so don't spoil it for me but where do you is that was that a passion of his was he like or was he like hey you know what i'm just gonna do this or 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 where does that fit in and how do you feel about those books with your background as as sort of a crime fiction fan i think that his reading history is very similar to mine he has talked often about how when he was a kid his mother would take him into town and he'd go to the the drugstore and there'd be the rack of paperbacks and he was always looking for the you know the sort of uh, crime novels with the scantily clad women on the on the front of them, and and over the years, I mean, I think our overlap in the things that we've read historically, like you know Ed McBain, Ross, uh, you know Chandler, Ross McDonald, I think there's there's a lot of that there, and he has written a lot of crime fiction, especially in short fiction, right from the very beginning. I know he's got things like the wedding gig and the fifth quarter and um the the one about the the quitters inc and you know there's lots of like crime mobster stories and so i think that it was only natural that at some point he really try his hand at it and there was a point when he moved to england when he thought he would go over there and absorb the english atmosphere and write his, his sort of british crime novel and and he um he wrote the first chapter or two of a, a, a whimsy, a Peter Whimsy novel, but he, he never finished that. And when uh, John D. MacDonald died, he actually approached the estate to see if they would allow him to write a posthumous Travis McGee novel, uh, which he had a title for it, it was called Chrome, and he had a sort of a rough idea about what it was going to be about. But the estate turned him down, and he, he, he said after that, he said it was probably for the best that, uh, you know, John D. McDonald was John D. McDonald, and yeah, you know, nobody and, else needed he, to play in that. He wrote the introduction for Night Shift, right? He John did. Yeah. yeah, yeah. They had a lot, and, and a lot of the Travis McGee novels. Trav is reading King books in the book. Uh, there's Cujo is mentioned, and Pet Cemetery, and so yeah, they they had a sort of a long back and forth. Mm. But it, I found, you know, he, he started really with the straight crime with Mister Mercedes, and I noticed over the run of those three books, first one straight crime. The second one ends with a little hint of something supernatural. And the third one is full-blown supernatural. And then if you look at the hard case books, the same sort of thing happens. I mean, Colorado Kid has some stuff that's, you know, vaguely inexplicable, but, you know, it's sort of hand-waved and it's never really addressed. And then we get on to Joyland, which is a ghost story. So there's, or possibly a ghost story. There's that stuff going on. And then in the opening pages of later, he right out of the gate, the first page, he said, this is a horror story. And so he has this sort of, okay, I'm going to bring you in with the straight crime, tease you a little bit, and then bam, we're back into like core Stephen King territory. <laughs> uh, Laird Barron did the same thing with his uh, Isaiah Coleridge uh, trilogy. Um, the first one, straight crime, and then it gets yeah. bananas by the end. Yeah. Um, and then it goes off, of course, with The Outsider. Yeah, uh, bring bring back Holly Gibney from the Mercedes books, and he's he he revisits uh, Holly again with another supernatural one in Let It Bleed, 
and then probably next year he's got another holly book coming out yeah um, he did tease that recently didn't he yeah all right so you worked with him so how did how did doing a fright or fl- a flight or fright um come about because um co-editing a book and sharing a byline with king that that's a whole nother territory right that one was the greatest of happenstance i would say um when the dark tower movie uh, came out uh, they they had a premiere in bangor and a lot of people were invited to go in for it and so i flew up to bangor and rich Shizmar was there with his sons and robin firth came in and then a lot of people from sony were in and everybody was traveling from all over the country to get to bangor which is not the easiest place on the planet to get to there's always like a puddle jumper at some point in your journey and so they had a dinner before the premiere and everybody was you know steve was working the room talking to people and everybody had their like little horror story about how their adventures in getting to bangor and at a certain point he stopped and he came over i was sitting at the table with rich chismar and his sons and he said i just had this idea for an anthology he said i recently read uh, horror in the heights um, the uh, Conan Doyle story. And he said, let's get together all of the scary flying stories. And then he looks at Rich and he sort of points at him and he says, you can publish it. And you know, I'm sitting right next to Rich and he says, you know, but I'm going to need some help getting, finding the stories. He said, that, that could be your job. And I, I've often <laughs> joked that if, you know, I'd gone off to the men's room or something like that, it could have been somebody else who got that job. <laughs> but uh, having been duly nominated, um, as soon you were as I voluntold, got told. Yeah, right? as soon as I got back to Houston, I said, "If whether or not he was joking, I'm going to take it as if it was serious, and let's get this ball rolling." And we started the exchange, and I started sending my ideas, and he started sending me ideas, and it all just came together. Right, and uh, you guys published a story by my friend Cody Goodfellow in there too. So you guys uh, uh, got some younger writers too. So it's not just like the classic, classic stories. Yeah, right? and the, the lead off is by a young guy named uh, Michael Lewis. And he's only published like half a dozen stories. But as soon as we found Cargo, we said, this is the opener. This just sets the, the, the tone for the story. But I think we pretty much strip mined the, uh, the category of uh, scary or I mean, stories set on airplanes, really. Yeah, I, I'm, looking we, we at, I'm looking at the, the stories in here. Yeah, I'm not sure... There's much more out there. Than yeah, these and, and we, we we went science fiction. Um, we have a, a locked room murder mystery. Uh, so yeah, we we weren't limited to just truly scary, you know, horror type scares. Uh, okay, so and, tell me about this process and how you guys worked on it. Like, um, you know, you took him seriously at him saying this, and then just and and went with it. You know, what was your collaboration like on it? Like, I'm sure it was all emails and yes, like... Yes, absolutely. Yeah. All, all done by email. The original plan was for us to use the Langoliers by, by King mm-hmm. uh, as his contribution, which, you know, it's in a book that people flippantly call a book of novellas, but that story is 90,000 words long. It's a full novel by anybody else's measure. Mm-hmm. And it would have really the balance in the book would have been like heavily weighted down by King. And so at a certain point he said, you know, what do you think of if I write an original story for it? And I'm thinking, Oh, really? That sounds like a great idea, Steve. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> don't throw me in that uh, briar patch kind of thing. And then Joe Hill, his son was sort of 
working around the periphery one day and he said, you know, I think I've got a story too. You know, maybe I'll send that in too. So we ended up, the original idea was it was going to be all reprints. Uh, we ended up with the two new stories, uh, one by Joe and one by Steve. Right. And um, so what was the process of searching for, like, how did you search for these stories? Like some you had to know off the top of your head. Some like... we knew, like the Matheson story, of course, we knew, and the Arthur Conan Doyle. Um, Google was my friend. Um, we Owen uh, King uh, suggested one of the stories. Uh, he knew the author. Um, I, I did a po couple of posts on social media asking for people to give us some ideas, um, which you know yielded some results. Uh, we had another story in mind for the finale. Mm -hmm. uh, it was a it was a really really funny little tongue in cheek. Uh, piece by a, a fairly well-known writer but when we approached him he said he didn't want that piece reprinted and so I had just finished writing an essay for the Poetry Foundation on Stephen King's poetry and one of the things I had discovered was that one of his favorite poets and poems was Falling by James Dickey uh, which is about a flight attendant who falls out of an airplane and it's sort of like her internal monologue as she's plummeting to the ground and so I, I wrote to Steve and I said, you know, what do you think about putting this in at the end? And he said, you know, I was thinking the same thing. That's how, <laughs> how falling ended up in the book. Oh, that's yeah, cool. You've got, you've got Raul Dahl in there. So you mm -hmm. got some war, a war story in there with that. Yeah, David Scow. Uh, there's two war stories, the, the, the Roald Dahl one and David Scow's. Um, Dan Simmons, who's always been one of my favorite writers. Um, a story that is so Thickly layered in metaphor that you once you know what the story is really about, you have to reread it and look at it from a completely different uh, mind space. And, and I had a story kicking around which had been published uh, in a very small market, which I, I said, you know what, I, I sent it to Steve just as sort of a curiosity. So, you know, what, what do you think of this? Not even proposing that we include it. And he said, oh, yeah, we have to put that one in. Uh, so zombies on a plane ended up in there. Well, you know, what's really cool, too, is that this is the kind of project that somebody like him um, could have easily just put his name on and had you do all the work. But he obviously was excited to yep. have input on it and to, to be a part of it. He wrote um, all the introductions to the stories, except he said I could introduce mine. Um, there was one I remember he was in a blackout in Maine, it was like the middle of the winter, and he, he uh, wrote the introduction by hand and took a photograph of it and emailed it to me later on. And his introduction, um, I think the scariest story in the whole collection is his real life experience uh, on a plane. Uh, it was like a private jet that had a very close call with a 747 or something and got flipped around. And that, that anecdote ended up in the Smithsonian Magazine uh, they asked uh, if they could reprint that. It's it's a, a harrowing. I mean, we almost lost Steve a long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Um, yeah, that's wow. That's really incredible. So now this new book that you're working on, um, which is an expanded version of you took some of the text from the illustrated um, King, right? And you're expanding it. What what's the concept of this book? And um, you know. Because you said that one was looking at the personal, you know, this is this, what what was your concept here on this one? So, so that one was looking at the personal for a select nine or 10 books. I, I, I couldn't, I didn't think I could write about everything. So I, I chose the ones that I thought, first of all, spanned his career 
and also had really strong biographical components to them. Uh, with this one, uh, a lot of what's in the previous book is there, but there's some discussion at least of every book that he's written. And so that's the big difference is it's massively expanded. You know, I, I barely touched on Salem's Lot in, in the, the previous book, so there's a bigger section on that. I had uh, Rich Chismar and I had been doing this project called Stephen King Revisited, where he uh, would reread the books and then you know compare his first recollections to the more recent ones. And I did the sort of deep historical dive into those books. And so I have I have all these files at hand that have all this biographical information from the era that I can tap into. And and really it's it's sort of like everything up to and including fairy tale, um, which I haven't read yet, but I was able to at least you know talk a bit about where the idea came from and how that uh, comes into play. Plus some interesting little sidelines. Like I, I love doing sidebars, just like little chapters or mini chapters about different things. And so I was able to really dig into Castle Rock, the city, town, city, um, everything we know about it, its history, its geography, its characters. And then the same thing for Derry. Um, so that, that was a lot of fun. Um, it, we, we have lists at least of every short story that he's ever done, every adaptation, um, every work essentially, uh, except for like all of his essays and things like that, which is like beyond the scope. But it, it's really like the, the whole picture, not as in depth as something like uh, Bill Sheehan's book, but everything gets covered all the way through. Now, does I'm sure you've mentioned to Steve that you're doing this. <laughs> um, does is, does he even want to know, or is he just like just go and do your thing? Like, yeah, I'm not even really involved in that. The publishers interface with his office, and they get all the clearances. Um, for the first book, he gave us uh, full access to his archives. He had right of refusal on anything that we decided we want to reproduce, but. He didn't exercise it. Uh, I think there was one document that had an address on it that he asked us to, uh, you know, to Photoshop out. But uh, basically, he let us go in and take whatever we wanted and reproduce it. Um, okay, so now I want to ask you about the archives because I'm just recently started doing this. Uh, in fact, in the last month, I had the chance to uh, hold the original first draft of Dune in my hands, which was <laughs> which was, you know, a mind-boggling experience. Um, and, you know, and to see, like, parts of Dune that were, like, crossed out and, you know, <laughs> thank God we didn't end up with a scene where Duncan Idaho calls a guy a top fighter, which was in there, <laughs> um, right? But And now I know this, right? But you had the chance to go into the archives and the papers, and I know since King's still alive and he's still, like, in control of these things, that there are some things you have to request to, yes. to see. For example... Yep. I know on the Kingcast they've talked about how like they really would love to see the screenplay for the Shotgunners, which was the script. Right, that, that one I've read. You've read it. Uh, okay. That, that was, yeah, okay. I, I've read the whole thing. Um, I went to visit. Uh, actually, so I was involved in one of the Dollar Baby film adaptations, uh, yeah. lunch at the Gotham Cafe, and we took that film. That they made a thirty-five mil print of it, and we took it to Bangor to screen it for for King. And while I was there, I got permission to go into the archives for, you know, a few hours, one, one afternoon. And, you know, we were, got the boxes brought out to us and looked through things. But, but the one thing I picked up and read cover to cover was the shotgunners. Yeah, which he would, he wrote for Sam Peckinpah before he died. Wrote for right? Sam Peckinpah and eventually got converted into the regulators. 
And and so you see the DNA of the regulators and the shotgunners. Absolutely, then. yeah. Okay. But, where the, but the shotgunners is a pure Western. There's no fantastical elements to it at all. It's straight hang them high, shoot them down kind of thing. Oh, wow. Yeah, he should publish that. <laughs> Yeah, and and but for the for the illustrated companion, uh, the publisher uh, Becker and Meyer had a documents researcher who went up and and he was the one who really got to paw over everything and he'd, he'd send me these PDFs by email saying what do you think of this what do you think of that and I thought oh wow that's great and then oh, I want there's, that a, job. there's there's an Uber, <laughs> there's a, a you know one of the biggest King collectors a friend of mine lives up in Amarillo and he got to go there. Somehow or other, Bob Jackson uh, got his hands on some of the original files from Doubleday, so all of the mail correspondence between the publisher and King. So we got a copy of the the telegram where they announced that Carrie was going to be published and all sorts of things like that that we got to reproduce as well. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's it's cool. When, um, uh, when I was at the PKD archives, like I got to hold several of the original manuscripts but it's funny seeing the the first they still have in the envelope the first notes from his editor on a scanner darkly like hmm. in the same envelope with his address label on it and <laughs> and everything it's so crazy to to see those things it's yeah um and now, and now king's archives are out of touch right now because they're being transitioned from the university of maine to the house in bangor um, and the, the house is going to be set up as a dual purpose thing. So part of it's going to house his archives and another part of it is going to be a writer's retreat. But of course, all of that launched just around the time that the coronavirus pandemic started. And so things got put on hold, but eventually you, you'll be able to make a request to go to King's famous house in West Broadway and uh, paw through his papers. Ooh, uh, Mark, road trip? <laughs> sure, I'm up for it, whatever. I almost, actually, I almost took you up on the road trip you mentioned the other, a couple, about a month ago online. Oh, the yeah, Roddenberry, I'll, yeah. I'll, um, go absolutely, I'll absolutely do that, why not? <laughs> yeah, Bev, I just recently discovered where the Roddenberry papers are with all the Star Trek papers, so I'm... Uh... But, but, but here's a strange admission. You know, I'm, I'm pushing 60, so the, the brain, well, I am 60. Uh, the brain's not always working quite as well as it always did. I found this old scrapbook from my college days and I was going through it, paging through it. And there was like all these funny pictures and things like that. And I came across a stub from when I went to see Gene Roddenberry talk at the student union building. <laughs> I had awesome. completely cool. forgotten that I had been in the presence of Gene Roddenberry for an hour or so. That oh, the just, great bird of the galaxy, huh? It was, was gone from my memory, but uh, there was the, the proof. Well, at Fullerton, I got to see Spinrad donated his papers, so his two episodes that he wrote, one that got produced, one that didn't. And uh, it's funny, the episode that became the Doomsday Machine, there's 11 pages of notes from Gene Coon. <laughs> 11 <laughs> pages uh, for the first draft. and um, But it's really interesting to see him say, like, Spock wouldn't say this, have this character say this. And what's interesting is Gene Roddenberry's notes are like a page and a half, but they're very crucial to the episode where he was like, because originally Spinred had Decker being this raving madman, and he's like, he should be catatonic, and McCoy should like help him to, to talk. <laughs> and it's so funny to see like this little note, and you've seen this episode like a hundred times, right? And, and and 
to know that it came from this note from Gene Ronberry. It's just a cool thing that people don't realize that going through the archives, it seems like it may be like, I don't know. It, it's, it's a lot cooler than people realize, I think, to, to, to see these tactile things. What's the coolest thing that you saw going through the archives yourself? The one thing I didn't see, I'll, I'll, I'll turn this thing around, but I really probably would someday make a trek to see is the aftermath, which is a novel King wrote when he was about 17 or 18. And it's, mm. uh, it's an alien invasion novel and it's set after they've taken over and there's all these new, it's, it's very science fiction-y. Um, Rocky Wood did get a chance to read it and I've, I've read his synopsis of it. Um, it. It will never see the light of day, you know, as, you know no, nobody will ever convince King to publish it because it's definitely juvenilia. But, uh, and then and there's certain descriptions of things that happen in it that, you know, a woman is raped in one scene and then a couple of days later, she's ready to have sex with somebody else. And, and you know, it's, just shows the sort of naivety of the young writer, but it, there are things in it that you can look and say, those were the germs of some ideas that came to fruition in later projects. Yeah, see, I had that experience. I read Earthshaker, the PKD first attempt. And it was hilarious too, because when I was reading it, I just kept laughing out loud at some of the silliness <laughs> of how bad it was. And one of the research, one of the librarians there said, I've never heard a researcher laugh as much as you. And I'm like, <laughs> you don't understand how bad this book is, <laughs> right? <laughs> and, um, yeah, that one has a, a talking baby in it, and a soldier is carrying this talking baby, and there's a scene where the baby insults him, and he and another character says, well, that's some baby you got there, and that was the one that made me laugh out loud, and I was just like, oh, my God. So I, comic, I would love to have... Series, right? Yeah. Like this cartoon series, The Baby Boss. <laughs> exactly. Boss Baby, yes. Well... <laughs> No, so if you had this, so aftermath is the one you would really like to do, huh? And that's cool that Rocky got to do that. I, um, I had a, uh, I was able to meet Rocky a few years back, and he's, he was, yeah, he's definitely, he's the other one up there with you on the, on the King knowledge. So yeah, he signed over the copyright uh, to his sort of book by book breakdown of characters, places, and things to Marsha DiFilippo and me. And someday I might go back and see about, you know, repackaging that, uh, making it more widely available and, you know, bringing it up to date. But that's, that's a mammoth task. I mean, Steve Spignacy tackled it way back in the 90s with a book called The Shape Under the Sheep, which was the first Stephen King encyclopedia, which was where, you know, you, you could go to any book and find out who this character was or what this place was. And I always said Spignacy was the guy who made me seem like I was smart because, when I had that beside me, if somebody wanted to know something, I just paged through his book and I could say, oh yeah, that was so-and-so. And... All right, well, um, so this new this new book, that's coming out soon. Do you have any new fiction coming out or what's going on with, 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 with your fiction? Yeah, I always have, you know, there's a whole stream of short stories, uh, most of them crime fiction, a um, couple of horror ones. Um, in my most recent two, um, was Dissonant Harmonies that I did with Brian Keane. Uh, and that's my longest piece of fiction published to date. Uh, I have a novella called The Dead of Winter. And, and for that one, Brian and I exchanged playlists for the other person to listen to. 
while we each wrote our stories because we've discussed over many, many years of friendship, the types of music we, we listen to while we're writing. Um, and then at the beginning of the pandemic, I decided I'd dip my toes into the, the self-publishing thing just to see what it was all about. And so I did a, uh, it's sort of like a, a noir Agatha Christie, a noir whodunit uh, called The Ogilvy Affair. I think I've got a copy of it on a shelf somewhere. Right there. Uh, right there. Uh, that, I, that I published through Amazon just to see what it was all about and how how easy it actually is. And it's, it, it, to me, it's, it makes it more understandable to me why everybody's doing it. It's so easy to actually do it, but then to actually get people to find the book and, and read it is the, the, the big hurdle. Right. Um, let's see, I have stories coming out. Um, there's a, an anthology series called Low Down Dirty Vote uh, that Misty Berry's been doing, and it's it's all about voter suppression and various different issues. And each anthology benefits a, a certain uh, legal or some organization that, that, that's uh, all about voting. And so the next one is about uh, critical race theory, I guess I would say my story is a little bit about in that one, but it's in, in the guise of a private detective story. All right, Mark, do you have any other questions you wanna throw at Bev before we have a few more minutes? I have one last question, Bev, and that's this. You've read a lot of Stephen King, right? You've read a lot of other things. You've written a lot of things. What scares you? What scares me? And I asked that because I was recently asked that by my daughter because every year I do a horror, a horror uh, film festival for her, which now she's in college, so I'm going to have to do it this summer. And she asked me what scares me, and honestly – it's a really when when you've read so much stuff and seen so much stuff, it's a really hard question to answer. So what I, scares you? I would you? say the, the the one thing that comes to mind, other than scary movies, which I'm a, I'm, I'm a real baby for scary movies. I I hardly ever really ever watch them anymore. Um, I would say that bad things happening to people that I love. That would be my number one with a bullet. Hmm. And, yeah. and King has a lot of that running through a lot of his books, definitely. And that's 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 why they work, because he makes you yeah. fall in love with his characters, and then he does really bad things to them. All right, so the new the the upcoming Stephen King book, the complete title is Stephen King: A Complete Exploration of His Work, Life, and Influences. And I always have to read it because I never remember it either. And the <laughs> the thing that I'm I'm really particularly pleased about this one is the first edition, the Stephen King Illustrated Companion, was a Barnes and Noble exclusive. And you could only find it at the bargain basement front of the book. I, I, I never felt like they treated that book very well. But, you know, collectors tell me, you know, we was spent $50 on this book and, you know, you could, you could get it for $12.99 in the discount bin. But this one is going to be available everywhere. Um, internationally, uh, all bookstores, independent bookstores, chain bookstores, there'll be an ebook edition of it. So it's going to be much more accessible to people. All right. Well, I might have to have you back after I have it in my grubby paws. And... So, end of September, which is timed for King's 75th birthday. Ah, very good. Yeah, um, I'm really excited to uh, put it on my reference shelf here. <laughs> and um, I think, uh, you know, it's really important. The the As somebody who really appreciates when people do deep dive in, into authors, I recently was able to read a biography of John Bruner is one of my favorite science fiction writers. And, you know, for years I read Bruner, there was little to no information out there about him. And so when you can get, you know, I know King's different because there's a lot of information out there, but to have, you know, really good expertise and stuff and 
I'm sure for you, did you abuse the ability to to just like fire off an email and and say like, can you answer this for me, or did you mostly do it on your not, own? Not not for this book. When I did the the second Dark Tower book, the the Dark Tower Companion, I interviewed him for that one, and his interview was in that book. I my relationship with him is mostly non-business. We just yeah. talk about the stuff that we like to read and that, but. When I, when I was working on the road to the Dark Tower, I'd asked him a question. And I found a passage in one of the books, uh, the, the fourth book, that seemed to imply that Roland had siblings at some point. And so I wrote to him and I said, you know, there's this sentence that Stephen says, he looks at Roland, the one who'd lived. And I said, it seems to me like he's got some siblings. And he said, yeah, you know, you're pretty smart for uh, a pretty smart Canadian, but he didn't elaborate. So when I got him on the phone to talk to him, uh, for the Dark Tower Companion, I said, you remember way back, uh, you know, you, you said that Roland maybe had some siblings. He said, do you want to, you know, expand on it a bit? He said, no. But then he did actually tell me a little bit. He told me about, uh, he, he gave me the name of Roland's sister. He, he actually had a sister and a brother. And he said, the, the woman who ran the place where Roland's mother was put when she sort of went crazy, said she's the one who knows the whole story about Roland's childhood. And someday maybe he'd like to tell that story. So he didn't really want to give away too much. No, and I, I do, I know I said I was going to let you go, but here, I, I got to ask this too. Um, on Twitter a couple of weeks ago, when King like kind of jo jokingly like implied that maybe the creature Pennywise and the creature from the outsider were the same thing. Um, do you think he was just messing with us or do you think, that there is a real possibility that they're the same creature. Some people say, oh yeah, it was totally confirmed in Insomnia. And, and other people are like, no, 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 no. He's just messing with us. What do you think? Well, uh, he, he said Flag and, and Pennywise were- Flag and Pennywise, yeah, that's flag. right, sorry. The thing. I think he was yanking some chains to be honest. But the, the, the funny thing, you know, people you know, interview me about this and I said, you know, I think I probably think, think much more deeply about some of these things than he does. He's much more intuitive. Man, when I, inter you know, when he published the, the Dark Tower Gunslinger originally, it was published in installments in fantasy and science fiction. And you could see over the course of the five stories, as he was doing the recap of what happened before, how his thinking about who Martin and Walter were, you could see it evolve. And so when I interviewed him for the Dark Tower Companion, I said, you know, what about Farson, who's a character who shows up in the first book? I said, you know, is Farson another version of Walter Martin Flagg? And he said, no, he said, Farson's just a guy. He, but then he went on to say something like, it was, I could never really get straight in my own mind whether Walter and Martin were the same or not. And so I think he just plays it as it comes to him. He doesn't sit down and map this all out. And so when somebody said, you know, is Pennywise and Flag the same thing? And he said, well, who says they aren't? That was his response. He didn't confirm it. He just yeah. said, who says they aren't? You know, I think he was just winding people up. You know, it's interesting because I think as readers, we do tend to think a lot more, I guess, a little bit more analytically than sometimes the author does. You like to think that the author's come up. Because in my opinion... Depends on the author. Yeah, King has done a really good job with the theme. A lot of his books early on had that theme of this sort of eternal evil, right? That was always there. It's in The Shining. It's it's in Cujo. It's in Pet Cemetery. It's it's there. And, and in a lot of ways, 
a lot of that can be seen as the same entity, right? The same sort of evil that just kind of seeps up from wherever it is and, and branches out into his different books. And I think that's seen in the Dark Tower. But yeah, I, I mean, the Randall Flagg thing, I always considered, I'm sure Randall Flagg, in his mind, maybe has popped up elsewhere, not been named Randall Flagg, right? I mean, it's that evil that's there. And so what's uh, really interesting is the so books that he's done it. with Rich Chismar. There's a, a guy named Ferris who shows up in the first of the Gwendy books, and he seems like an ominous character. But over the course of the three books, he is much more uh, a character of the white. He's more helpful. He, he's, he's not a bad guy. And so I interviewed him and Rich about that, and he said, yeah, he said, I, I, I think my thinking about who this guy was changed, but by, by the time we got to the point that we realized that, it was too late to go back and change his initials. Uh, so that people automatically think that he's another Randall Flagg entity. Mm, yeah. All right, Bev, any last words for our listeners? Um, big King fans, like uh, what, what you want to I say? I can't wait to read Fairy Tale. I'm, I'm really, really looking forward to reading Fairy Tale. Yeah. Yeah. That one looks interesting. I, I um, you know, I'm, I'm not saying I loved Later. Later was the one in the recent years that I, that really sunk home with me, but um so but yeah i think i'll uh, that and um i think the holly gibney one coming up is what we know about so That's what we know about. yeah okay all right well uh stephen Thank king fans constant readers i hope uh you enjoyed this uh interview and if you are new to this podcast uh mark was on a great episode with laird barrett and mary san giovanni uh talking about the 10 uh our, our uh 10 greatest horror short stories. It's like five hours long almost. It's, it's a long one. It's awesome though. It's it two awesome. episodes. So, um, so Mark was on that one. And then um, we've got uh, a lot of other great stuff. Stephen Graham Jones uh, was on here. Josh Mellerman a couple times. Paul Tremblay. Uh, uh, Alma Katsu. Please check out our other episodes. And like and subscribe and all that stuff. I don't generally beg for that stuff, but it's always good when you do. Bev, thank you for joining us on Postcards. We'll have you okay. back. Um, maybe we'll break down a, a King book together because I'm going to be doing more individual novel breakdowns in the future. That'll be so, fun. Thanks very much for having me on. Thanks, thanks Bev. for coming. And uh, folks, we'll uh, see you later.